Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, ladies and gentlemen, wherever you are in the world, welcome back to The Caring Economy with me, Toby Usnick. Today's guest is Marissa Quinn. She has spent the bulk of her career at Brown University, the prestigious 255-year-old liberal arts college in the Northeast in Providence, Rhode Island. After nearly 22 years there, she is now going to be retiring this year. She's currently the chief of staff for the provost. Marissa Quinn, welcome to The Caring Economy. Thank you, it's great to be with you. So we always like to ask our guests at the start to tell us a little bit about their career journey, um, sort of the highs, lows, how you got where you got. So how did Marissa Quinn not only get to this prestigious place called Brown, but then manage to stay all those years? You know, it is funny when you put it that way because I'm such a public school, I'm such a product of the public schools, whether it's, you know, K through 12 and high school and uh, the University of Rhode Island and graduate degree from Rutgers. And so um, getting to Brown, it definitely felt like I'd won the lottery in some ways. Um, I kind of, it goes back in some, in some ways. And I think, I, I think this is important because the topic of what you're focusing on is kind of responsibility, corporate responsibility, the caring economy. And I think the most important thing my parents ever did was move from, we lived in this kind of old mill town in Rhode Island in a little ranch where nine of us were crammed in and my father got a job at uh, North Kingston High School and we moved to an island community. We literally had one bridge and the other, there was a bridge being built, but it was a small island community and just great schools and a great lifestyle. And it makes me, it reminds me often about zip codes. You know, just the zip codes that we end up in can be so transformational. So- statistically proven to actually inform where one ends up in life. I mean, it's, it's kind of crazy. And since we know that we should fix it, but in the meantime, I've benefited from that. <laughs> um, and so uh, I, I guess, for my own career, um, you know, again, I mentioned that I grew up in this small town and I didn't really leave until I was 15 years old and I went to the Philippines as an exchange student. And that was really eye-opening to be in a, go from my own little small town to this completely different culture, um, uh, obviously country, way of life. And it was amazing on every level, including reminding me or making me aware for the first time about the role of government. It was the martial law Marcos regime when I was there. You had to go through a metal detector to get to a movie theater. And um, there was tremendous, vast inequalities in terms of wealth and, and everything that goes along with that. And I was struck again by just where you're born, the randomness of where you're born and to whom you're born and where you grow up can make such a big difference. So that was what sparked my interest in kind of policy and government. And I ended up pursuing that, studied political science, went to, at the University of Rhode Island, worked for um, Senator Claiborne Pell and followed the path of the public sector. Um, and I always did higher ed policy work. And so when I had my son, I was living in New York and I was living in New Jersey, working in New York, wanted to come back to Rhode Island, wanted to come back to this town that I grew up in that was very embracing, very uh, nurturing, a lot of fun. And I wanted to raise my son here and I wanted to have a good career. And Rhode Island is notorious for not necessarily having great career options, at least at that time. Mm -hmm. 
and I really wanted to work at Brown. And I ended up forging a path uh, there. At first, I worked for the Rhode Island Department of Education. And over the course of that, um, met Gordon Gee, who was the president of Brown. They were looking for a director of federal relations because our good friend, Christine Heenan, was leaving at that time yep. to go start her own business. And, and I ended up taking the job that she left. And that's how I started at Brown. <laughs> yeah. And uh, Christine was our guest who just aired this week. So it's fun to have the two of your interviews almost back to back. Um, can you say in your tenure at Brown, um, sort of broadly, what are some of the trends or observations you've noted? I mean, we've certainly seen, I believe, greater diversification of students in higher ed, but is that a fair statement? Um, how and what type of diversification perhaps? Has it been financial, socioeconomic? Has it been racial? Has it been? Yeah, so all of the above. Yeah, again, I started in 1999 and I've been there um, 22 years and I've had a variety of roles. And I think at least for Brown, it's the least well-resourced of the Ivy League, but very aspirational. And uh, mm -hmm. I worked for Ruth Simmons. She was the president of Brown for 11 years. And she really um, came in with uh, fearless, commitment to drive change and excellence. And she impressed upon everyone that the only way to do that was to ensure that there were not financial barriers for the most talented, promising individuals to come to Brown. So she established the policy of need blind admission. And it was one of those moments where working for her was a bit of a masterclass in leadership, but she just had the confidence that we would get the resources to make that possible and that, um, has certainly transpired and it's only uh, increased. And so um, we have become more, I think every institution probably, uh, at least in the Ivy League and beyond, um, has made a commitment to being as diverse as possible because it's it's central to excellence. And so it, it, it means financial diversity and socioeconomic diversity and that does take resources and as private institutions, we rely on philanthropy in large part to do that, to supplement federal aid, obviously. Um, but also, you know, racial, ethnic, diversity, first gen, uh, and at least at Brown, I can't speak to other institutions, there has been a very clear mission to be diverse in every dimension and then to create an inclusive community where all of this diversity can really contribute to excellence. Yeah, the belonging or the inclusion piece. It's, it's yeah. one thing that just bring a diverse person into a community and organization. It's another to ensure that they thrive, um, which is a complete parallel to what happens in the private sector with good corporate social responsibility, in my opinion. Um, I, I wonder, um, sticking with the sort of the diversity piece, how were things this past year with um, the Black Lives Movement, George Floyd's murder, Breonna Taylor? Um, did, the, did the students and the administration work hand in glove on addressing the issue? It's, it's a really interesting question. And one thing I have seen at Brown over you know, these 20 years is there has been this commitment. And then there are these inflection points and the institution has continually over that period had a, a plan to strengthen diversity and inclusion. But 
the students and the faculty and others have pushed the university to do more. And mm -hmm. sometimes, you know, it's not always comfortable, but it is so important. Mm -hmm. And so in, you know, again, in 2015, when there was campus uprisings across the country, I, I think I'm not proud of the fact that it was surprising to me because I felt like we were living in this bit of a utopia with tremendous diversity. It looks like the United Nations in many ways. And, it's a beautiful community, and yet there was tension, and there were there were structural issues that students need to rail against in some ways. And it caught the attention, and we developed a really excellent plan called the Pathways to Diversity and Inclusion Action Plan. And as you've written about in your book, just for for an institution to be successful on anything, it has to reach every single aspect, every nook and cranny of the university, yeah. and. Um, that's what we've done and we've made great progress in terms of recruiting faculty. You know, people used to say, well, there's no pipeline. Well, we know that's just not true. Correct. Right? Just not true. And right. we have a role to play in creating an even more robust pipeline. And so the university really has embraced that. So last year, in the wake of George Floyd and all of the other, you know, terrible murders of black individuals um, at the hands of police violence, in particular, again, our community was called for more, you know, called for our own introspection about what does it look like to have policing on campus? What does it look like to be truly equitable? Mm -hmm. um, I think that because we had done a lot of work, it was more hand in glove, but we are a, a community where people um, have a lot of agency and often make demands. and. Mm -hmm. You know, so we, I think we've responded well. We have, again, we try to think about what does it mean to be a university? What's mission oriented? What can we do? And the president is, President Chris Paxton is an amazing leader and she's really embraced this as her mission as well as the provost. So everything from having a, a task force on anti-black racism to look within the university. What are the structures within the university? Um, what are the kind of programming? I worked on a a lecture series with the Center for the Study of Race and Ethnicity in America with Professor Trisha Rose. And she basically curated a year long series elevating the excellent scholarship of faculty at Brown on everything from race and anti-Black racism in America, race and slavery in America, race and genetics in America, race and public health in America, you know, race and social movements. And it was it was, you know, part of our effort to elevate awareness in, in a deeper way yep. that would extend beyond a flashpoint. So th those are just a few. We, had, we did a, re a research seed fund to inspire research. So there's always more. What I've learned is there's just always more that we can do. Mm -hmm. Well, you are a mission-driven person. It's a mission-driven institution. And I think that that's helpful when one is trying to so to speak, be the change we want to see in the world. You've got to try and focus that effort because you could also get diluted or overwhelmed or exhausted. Um, so I wonder what are some of your uh, secret success tips for that? How have you stayed on mission and, um, and not gotten bogged down or thrown off course? I mean, as a university, I think it's having a plan. It's being very planful being, and, and aligning everything we do to the mission so that you're not doing something extra over here that doesn't make any sense. You know, that if we are going to be 
making financial contributions in some way that it's aligned with who we are as a university and not kind of random. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that that's really key because we have a focused plan and we, we drive the plan. And when things happen that may happen outside of that, it, it, there's ways to align what we're doing to, to address those things. So um, in the case of the right now, the university is looking at um, the, our campus police and we have a, a great department and they are very much community members. But again, the, the, what we're thinking about, what does it take to actually secure a campus community in an urban environment that's very diverse, that wants to be welcoming? Does everybody need to be armed? No. So what does that mean? That you need maybe need some arming. So um, everything that they've taken on is very intentional and thoughtful. And then personally, I guess uh, it's, with every, I have to say, with every demand letter, it's a little like, oh, I thought we were making progress. It can be deflating. But then I do have to remember, and I remind myself, and I remind others who are thinking about coming to Brown or um, institutions of higher education generally right now, that to love these places, to live these places and fully experience them, you have to embrace the energy and activism of the people that make it up and who would want in any other way even though personally it can be draining <laughs> you know, i have experienced white fragility for sure but to just remind myself that we are all the university is not stagnant it's growing and as individuals as humans we're always learning and that's a beautiful thing yeah that that, that kind of uh debate or discourse is healthy i agree and it's also what historically universities have been expected to do um and i also think that it's been um i, I think that that's our responsibility both personally and professionally is to be that catalyst and to try, try and um not observe or 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 watch so much as to do to engage um i'm a product of a small liberalized college myself hampton sydney and i I like the fact that at smaller schools, I believe you're able to be more of a citizen because you can participate. It's expected you participate in more than one thing, not just your studies, but a sport, uh, extracurricular club. And um, it, I think it just creates a more well-rounded citizen actually. Would you agree with that? I totally agree with it. I think it's a great advice for anyone. You don't need to be going to school to do that, right? Even if you choose a different pathway to have that kind of a well-rounded human experience. Get outdoors, read a book, ride a bike. <laughs> <laughs> Look the other in the eye. Tell us, Marissa, with COVID, how did you cope at the university? Did you go into um, hybrid mode? Did you go right to distance learning? Um, what's the status on the campus now? So, March, I think it was March 13th, 2020, we, as we were all kind of watching this crazy virus spread, uh, we got the word that we were going to shut down and we were sending students to study remotely. We made the decision to extend spring break by a week, to send students early, extend spring break by a week, and then faculty really focused on getting their courses online. And we didn't have many courses online at that time. And so they were really, it was a Herculean effort to, to do that. And 
and just supporting our students. We have a, a global community. So getting our students safely home, uh, wherever that might be, to make sure they have the technology to be able to engage in their academics if they were in, you know, New Jersey or Nigeria. Um, it was, that was, everybody just kind of came together and made that happen. Mm -hmm. And then we went into, this is also when I thought governance really mattered. We did planning. We did these planning committees where some group was thinking about academic continuity and another was uh, thinking about ensuring community throughout this period and another thinking about student support. And so um, we did that and we were both basically online. Actually, because something I wanted to ask you about, Marissa, is the Varsity Blues scandal. Um, maybe not Brown, but um, of other institutions, have you observed that that scandal in part evolved from poor governance in a higher ed institution? I mean, I would say yes. I don't know enough about the institutions that were implicated, but I do think that that makes sense that there, there needs to be rigor. There needs to be engaged decision-making. There needs to be ways um, in the, especially in these large institutions of sharing information, of having insights into others' work and, and transparency. So, you know, following the Varsity Blues scandal, we did do an assessment at Brown. And fortunately, you know, we did have good, strong systems in terms of admissions and having, you know, firewalls between admission and fundraising and athletics, but we tightened some things up. But there's no question that um, it's, it's, all, it's about leadership too. You need strong Absolutely. leadership. That's kind of at the, the, the spine of good governance. And you know, that kind of engaged decision-making, transparency, and purposefulness. I mean, I was thinking a lot about talking to you today and thinking about what does it mean to be a great leader? And integrity is so important and making sure that integrity infuses mm -hmm. every aspect of your organization, whatever that organization may be. Mm -hmm. uh, so in the intentions of that leader, I think, are everything. Um, do you... Do you think that um, it's crazier than ever for young people who want to go to college, particularly to Brown or the Ivy Leagues? It seems like things are a little bit out of kilter. I completely agree with you. I do think that there's a moment, and I think the pandemic has been helpful in this respect, to think about institutions, you know, not just kind of the AAU, you know, top research universities or elite liberal arts colleges, but beyond that, but certainly those rarefied places that are well-resourced and have tremendous, you know, academic um, wealth as well, you know, amazing faculty, technology. How do we bring those resources to bear to mm -hmm. truly serve the national interest, to do our mission in an even more scaled way. Mm -hmm. um, and I just, I have to think that institutions are thinking that way. I know yeah. that Brown is. Mm -hmm. Well, to that end, there's uh, one, uh, one other area I wanted to ask you about. I'm proud of you for what you have done at Brown, which is around the uh, Hurricane Katrina relief efforts. I wonder if you might share with our, our listeners a little bit about what happened at Brown. Sure. Um, so that was actually President Simmons. And again, I've mentioned her a couple of times, Ruth Simmons, who was the president of Brown, I guess from 2000 and 
2001 to 2011 or 12. Um, and I worked for her and I was her assistant. She actually went to school at Dillard University in New Orleans and she was watching intently as Katrina was uh, just railing against the city and as the, um, the flooding started to happen. And it was so instructive because she was passionate about doing something and she picked up the phone and called Shirley Tillman at Princeton University and said, Shirley, let's do something. And they ended up engaging in a partnership with some of the universities there too while all of those institutions closed because they had to rebuild after Katrina, we took, a, all of us, Princeton, Brown, others, I'm sure, took students so that they could continue their studies and took scholars so that they continue their research. So again, very mission-oriented. And it was amazing for our community. So I was part of that effort, but what helped me was that when after Hurricane Maria, and we saw the same thing happening in Puerto Rico, President Paxson and Provost Block, my boss, were in the same kind of state of what can we do to help? Mm -hmm. And I said, well, we've done this before. Why don't we contact the University of Puerto Rico and see if, there's, if, if they think that they'll be closed for some period of time. Is there some set of students and scholars that we might support by bringing them here? And UPR, University of Puerto Rico was game their president's office said, yes, we're gonna be closed for a while. We developed quickly a, a way to bring students that would you know, benefit by being at a place like Brown for, it ended up being a year. Mm -hmm. And our entire community came together to make that happen. We brought 30 students to campus. We had faculty house them for the first semester because we were already in the middle of a semester. Mm -hmm. Faculty provided special classes for them and those students changed our community. They were amazing, driven. All they wanted to do was get their courses, stay yeah. on track to graduation. I mean, I oversaw that project and I was nervous because I thought if I were 17 years old coming to Brown University, I wasn't going to be concerned about this classes. I would want to go to all the parties, but they were so disciplined. I suspect it's going to be similar for the kids today coming back from COVID. Um, I love the nimbleness with which you both have conducted your life, but also how Brown has inserted itself in these moments of crisis nationally and, and I presume internationally. Um, I think that that gives me, I know that that gives me great hope and optimism about the future. I think that anything can really be addressed or solved if we have leadership. And as you were alluding to earlier, sort of a moral compass. I wonder, um, as a final question, Marissa, if you have any reflections as you as you are sort of, sorry to say, winding down there at Brown. Um, it's been a great run. Um, any fond reflections, memories, or or lessons learned that you might want to share with our larger audience? It almost sounds like your commencement address. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Oh, there's so many lessons. You know, again, I think it's. I've had great opportunities at Brown and I've just seized them. I think along the way, people inviting me to come do this or that job or role. And I mean, even in this last year, I was very involved in a pandemic related project and it was daunting because I thought, can I do this? And I just did it and worked hard and relied upon the generosity of others. Mm -hmm. And I really think that the most important thing for anybody is just building bridges you know, building community, trusting people and being trustworthy. Mm -hmm. It's really paid off for me for my career. I'm still good friends with people I worked with in Senator Pell's office and Governor Florio's office, you know, um, 
over and and I rely on them and they can rely on me and that's it's a, been a great great thing so I feel like I'm leaving Brown in terms of my job but I'm not leaving the community at all that's fantastic I, I love your metaphor we've talked about before of islands and how you have you've been able to thrive on islands but also once on island you're a bridge builder right so yes know your community know your people but then build bridges out to others and you've certainly exemplified that professionally and personally i'm, I'm honored to have you as a pal first and a colleague second so i know we have to you. spend more time together <laughs> well we will now um so marissa quinn thank you so much for joining us on the caring economy today and we'll have to have you back from your retirement moment <laughs> Thank you. I'm not going to be retiring in my retirement. <laughs> Thank you, Toby. It's been a pleasure always. Um, again, ladies and gentlemen, today we have um, Marissa Quinn with us today from Brown University. She is the soon to retire chief of staff for the provost there after 22 years with the prestigious college in Providence, Rhode Island. Uh, so yes, I like that expression that governance really matters, whether it's in a school or in a business.